The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes, taking a long look at life under the sun. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, like you said, my name is David Sanderson, and uh, I don't recognize many of you, and you guys probably don't know me, but I go to Sacred City Davenport across the river, and uh, I've been going there for about a year and a half, so you, you could say that I replaced you guys. Right about the time you left is when I started going, so uh, it's good to be here. I'm excited to be up here. I'm excited to preach through this psalm. I, you guys have gotten a taste of it all morning. I feel like the worship and the liturgy have been preaching this sermon for me, so I'm excited to be up here. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray, and then we can, we can hop right in. Heavenly Father, uh, God, I, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the evidence of grace that uh, this church is here in this building and that you've blessed and multiplied this church since they left. Uh, Father, I have one simple prayer. God, I pray that we would walk away from this psalm uh, seeing your goodness and uh, being able to enjoy your goodness despite the circumstances of our life. So, God, I pray that you would do that this morning. I pray that you would move in this room, and Father, that you would uh, put me in the background and bring, bring your word forward. God, glorify yourself this morning. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Psalm 73, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. It's a pretty long psalm, so we got, I'm sorry to the reader, <laughs> uh, sorry you had to read that whole thing, but it's a good one. There's a lot here for us to get into, so uh, yeah, go ahead and open up your Bible to that. We're going to work through that. So recently, like I said, I, I go to Sacred City Davenport. My, my MC the last couple months has been going through uh, this thing called the Story Formed Way. It's kind of a curriculum that a lot of MCs go through if you're in one, if you're in a missional community. You've probably been through it. You spend a couple months going through kind of the story of God through the Bible, and you see this pattern of creation, fall, redemption, glory kind of worked out through the scriptures. And then after you're done working through the Bible, you, you kind of go around and you have people share their life story with the group. And it's kind of a challenging moment for everybody. Uh, some people really don't want to do it, but it's really powerful. We're able to kind of bring up some, some demons from people's past and work through them in the gospel and it was, it was a really good experience for our MC, and I kind of noticed a pattern when we were going through this that at some point in pretty much everybody's life, they kind of developed this thesis statement of what the good life would look like. I think for some people, it was pretty specific. They had a you know, specific job, specific town, way they wanted their life to be. For other people, it was more general. They, they didn't want to be stuck in the same town all their life. They, they wanted to live an exciting life. They didn't want to be in some dead-end job. Everybody kind of had this pattern form. And seeing that really got my, my wheels turning. I, I wanted to understand why we all did that. And uh, so I, this is kind of my thought. I think that, well, I know for a fact that our culture values people based off of success. You know, money, wealth, health, uh, the, your energy, your accomplishments, the experiences that you've had. And the way that our culture thinks, it affects the way that we think, right? So we start valuing other people based off of those exact same things, success and Power, wealth, status, all of those things, we judge people by them. We, we undervalue the poor, the ugly, people that can't do what we can do. And then it doesn't only affect the way that we look at other people, it affects the way that we look at ourselves. We have that mentality or have that picture that we painted when we were a kid. Most of the time it's when you're a kid. But this idea of what we wanted life to look like. And that becomes kind of our gold standard for what the good life is. We've got this painted picture and... What happens is a lot of times life doesn't work out that way. I don't know if you know that, but things, things go, you know, awry, and you don't, 
You don't always get what you wanted when you were a kid. Your life doesn't always look that way. And so we get frustrated because we're fascinated with that picture that we've painted. We get frustrated when life doesn't work out that way, and we get depressed when we're 30 and single, or we feel lonely because we don't have a lot of friends, or you know, your job is, is a dead-end job, and you feel like you're going nowhere in life. You feel like you don't have any meaning or purpose. And we can become anxious, depressed, and start to really wonder if God is good. We, we question the validity of our lives. We question what God says about himself. And we're, we're kind of in this snowball effect of thinking that God is holding out on us, that he's not giving us the life that we want, that there's a good life out there, but he doesn't want me to have it. And that snowball effect really affects a lot of us. I think it's probably a, a big part of the church. It's a big part of my life. And so I'm excited to preach this psalm this morning because I think it shows us that we are not alone. I think in the psalm we see Asaph, the prophet who wrote this psalm, working through this exact same struggle. He's looking at his life and he's comparing it to these other people. And he's frustrated with where he's at. He kind of comes down on the side of why doesn't my life look that way? He's overwhelmed with envy. And so Psalm 73 is important for us because it teaches us a perspective that God can use to lift us out of our insecurities and give us a better perspective on life. So let's go ahead and get into it. Let's uh, open up your Bible to Psalm 73, verse 1. A psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So Asaph is going to tell us a story in this psalm about this experience when he was envious of the wicked. He saw the lifestyle that they had and he was envious. So let's keep, let's keep moving and see where he goes with this story. Verse 4, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. So Asaph here is kind of unraveling what he's envious of. He's showing us the physical circumstances of these wicked people. He says that they do not have pangs until death, so they're healthy. They're, they're not sick. They're not overwhelmed with disease. Their bodies are fat and sleek, which means they have abundant food. They're not constantly worrying about where their next meal is going to come from, so they're probably richer than most people or have some sort of status. They're, they're not worried about food in everyday life. They are not in trouble as others are, so they have some sort of status or power that keeps them out of kind of regional conflicts and wars. They're not worried about that. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Again, they're not being oppressed by any other people. They're, they're in a position of power. They have some privilege. And so Asaph here describes these physical characteristics, and these are the things that he's really putting on a pedestal. He sees the lives that these people live, and he wants that. He wants a life that looks just like that. So let's, let's keep going. He says these people are wicked, but so far we just see that they have a you know, pretty good life. they got a lot of stuff together. They're, they're super rich. These are the one percenters. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. They set their mouths against heaven. Or they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. And, they set, and their tongue struts through the earth. So here we see why these people are evil or why they're arrogant, right? So Asaph, first he showed us their physical circumstances, and now he's showing us kind of their attitude or the mentality about life, the way they look at life. Notice the therefore at the beginning of this section. It's pretty important. He's saying that 
their values, their mentality, their attitude is a natural product of their life circumstances. So we see that they have this status, they have this power, this wealth, and therefore they're filled with pride. They wear it like a necklace. It's the first thing that you notice about them when you see them. Their violence because they don't view people as valuable. They're, they're above everybody. And it's one of the first things you notice about them. Violence covers them as a garment. It says their eyes swell out through fatness. They don't see past themselves. They look at the world and all they see is themselves first. They're a selfish people. They scoff, or their heart overflows with follies, right? They have everything and so they think they know everything. But really they're just foolish. They're greedy people. They scoff and speak with malice. They don't really care about other people. They loftily threaten oppression. They view other people as a mechanism to make themselves richer. They're oppressive. And they set their mouths against the heavens because really what's God when you control every aspect of your life? When you're you're in complete control, when you have everything going for you, what, what do you need God for? So these people have an attitude that is a product of their physical circumstances. And it's a, it's a wicked attitude. We can see that the physical blessings that these people have has really poisoned their, their attitude, their, their view of life. So let's jump into verse 10 here. So the people of Israel kind of see these people, and we see them kind of have a, a conundrum here. Verse, verse 10, Therefore his people, God's people, the people of Israel, turn back to them, the wicked, And find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? So therefore, because of these people's circumstances that poison their attitude, the people of Israel look at these people and they are confused. I think contextually it's important to know that the Mosaic Covenant, which was like the big covenant for the people of Israel, was a, a series of blessings and curses It was this whole mechanism of blessings and curses. If the people of Israel honored God, things would go well for them. Their lands would have plentiful harvests, they would win wars, they would have lots of children, they wouldn't have diseases, but if they worshipped other gods, if they turned away from God, if they failed in the covenant, God would curse them. They would have famines, enemy countries would invade, they would be enslaved, their life would, would go poorly. So you have this dynamic of blessings and curses which is so impacted into the minds of the Israelites that they're now seeing this group of people who are wicked and evil, but they don't see the curses coming. They see the the sin, but they don't see God in judgment punishing these people. So they're confused. They're they're questioning whether God knows, sees the evil that's happening to them. The the people of Israel are, are being oppressed by this group of people, and yet they don't see God doing anything. And so they're confused. They're, they're not understanding life. It, God isn't behaving in the way that they would expect him to behave. So I think it's, it's important for us to pause here and kind of acknowledge that it's okay to admit that. right? It's okay for us to be confused about what God is doing and, and vocalize that. They, they go to Asaph, their prophet, with this question. They're, they're trying to seek out and understand what God's doing. It's okay to do that. We see a pattern in the Bible of people questioning the actions of God. In Psalm 35, David says, How long, O Lord, will you look on and do nothing? And in Psalm 42, David says, O God, my rock, have you forgotten me? And then in Job, we see Job goes hard here. In Job 3, 23 through 26, he says, Why is life given to those with no future? 
Those God has surrounded with difficulties. I cannot eat for sighing. My groans pour out like water. What I always feared has happened to me. What I dreaded has come true. I have no peace and no quietness. I have no rest. Only troubles come. Job is saying, God, why did you give me life if this is what it's going to be like? So it's, it's okay. We need to acknowledge it's okay for the people of Israel to, to question this. We can be confused in life about what God is doing. I think all of us would be lying if we said that we don't do that. God does things we don't understand all the time. It's okay to question it. So these are all prayers from the Bible of people that are questioning God. So don't feel ashamed if you question God. Don't feel like your faith is weak or that you're a minor league Christian because suffering happens and you're not confused about what God's doing. It's important to, to realize. So the people of Israel are confused. They don't understand what's going on. So they go to Asaph. They ask this question, does God see what's going on? Why isn't God punishing these people? And let's see how Asaph responds. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in their riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So here we see Asaph start to explain his envy. and It's a pretty powerful verse. He shows us the heart of his emotions. He's comparing his circumstances to the circumstances of the wicked. He, he sees them at ease and in riches, and he is stricken and rebuked. Right? That's not an equal comparison. He's looking and he's confused about why that is the way it is. And it's really pounded home when he remembers that he's a prophet and he's working in the temple all day long, facilitating the worship of God, serving God. He's striving to serve him, to live a holy life. He's washing his hands in innocence. He's keeping his heart clean. He sees himself living a righteous life. And then he sees these wicked people who are scorning God, oppressing God's people. And yet they're getting the blessing that he feels he deserves. And so he screams, God, what are you, what are you doing? This isn't, this isn't what I signed up for. I, I didn't know I was going to have to go through this. That's, that's what I wanted. I wanted that life. And you're giving it to these evil people? He's, he's confused. He's, he doesn't understand what God is doing. He thinks God is holding out on him, that he's putting him through the ringer for no reason. And he, he's saying in this verse that it's not worth being a prophet if I have to go through this pain. How many of us have felt, have felt that way? I mean, I, I know I have. How many of us are feeling that way right now? I think we all know people that are like that. They, they scorn God. They mistreat their neighbor. They abuse their family. They, they live a life of unrighteousness, and, and yet they have it all. They've got that giant brick house. They've got that fancy car living over there in Bettendorf. And yet their lives don't honor God at all. And then we... We feel like we're doing everything right. We feel like we're striving to live a God, life that honors God. We're trying to, I mean, live the good life, trying to love people well, trying to serve people, and yet their life looks more like our dreams than ours do. And, that, and that's frustrating. We, we all feel like Asaph in that way when we compare our lives to them and we get jealous. But I, I think it's even deeper than that. We, we fall further because we can begin to think that the life that God has planned for me is not as good as what I have planned for me. We question God. We don't trust him and what he's doing in our life. 
I mean, do you, do you remember the last time or the first time that uh, you realized that life wasn't going to be what you thought it was? You had a plan, and you thought this is what life was going to, how it was going to turn out, and then it took a turn. That girl you thought you were going to marry breaks it off. You have disease that strikes your family. You lose that sale. You lose that job. You fail that test. I mean, those things happen all the time. We have these plans that we put in our mind, this way we think life is going to go, and then things don't go to plan, and we, we question what God is doing. We question his goodness. We think that there's a, a better life out there, a more fulfilling life, that life wouldn't be the way it is. I wouldn't be the way I am if life had just gone the way that I had planned. And that stirs up that frustration and anger that Asaph has, and we can scream out, God, why is life this way? This isn't, this isn't what I wanted. So this, this is where Asaph is at mentally, emotionally. When the people of Israel come to him and ask him, why isn't God doing what he said he was going to do? Asaph feels the same way. How is he supposed to answer them as their prophet when these people are being oppressed and they're wondering why God isn't you know, judging these people and then he's envious of these people and wonder why God isn't blessing him? How is he supposed to respond? He doesn't, he doesn't have a good response. So let's see what he does. Verse 15. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, if I would have told him what's on my mind, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. So Asaph, trying to understand this situation, trying to understand his own emotions, trying to understand and comfort the people of Israel, understand what they're going through, He's overwhelmed, and he considers this a wearisome task. And so, he goes to God. There's a whole sermon right here on going to church, why we go to church. Because like Asaph, our lives are wearisome tasks on top of wearisome tasks, and we need to go to church for answers, perspective. We need to be renewed. So that's a whole other sermon we won't get into, but good practice here. We should try that out. So Asaph goes to the temple And he gets this new perspective from God. Let's keep reading. Verse 18. Truly you set them, the the wicked people, in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So Asaph goes to the temple and God reveals to him kind of an eternal perspective on these wicked people. He shows him their end, what's waiting for them in eternity. All of those things that they have been building up, everything that they have strived to achieve, all of their houses, their vineyards, their sheep, you know, whatever they have at this point in time, all of their status, their power, their achievements, their legacy will be forgotten. Just, just gone in a moment. God's saying that when he arouses himself, they'll, they'll uh, what does it say here? Rouses himself, he despises them as phantoms. Like when you're waking up and you think you see something in the corner and then you look again and it's gone and then you forget about that later. These people's lives are, are not going to be remembered. They're going to be lost. Everything will, be, everything will disappear. I mean, we just finished Ecclesiastes, right? So... It's all vanity. Everything is going to fade away. So Asaph learns that 
These people that he's envious of, there's no reason to be envious of them. Their life is going to be swept away. So he's entered the house of the Lord and he's gained this eternal perspective that changes the way that he looks at these people. So eternal perspective, what do I, what do I mean by that? Let me, let me define that for you. So eternal perspective is accurately perceiving or identifying the eternal and the temporal and acting and thinking in light of those classifications. So what do, what do I mean by eternal and temporal? So the temporal things are, are just that. They're temporary. They are those things that affect us here and now on earth, but have no meaning in eternity. And then you have the eternal things. Eternal things affect eternity. That one's a little easier to understand. Both of these things are significant. Don't, don't get me wrong. Both of these things matter. They affect our everyday lives. We, we should make decisions in light of both of them. They matter. But there's a difference in scale. So so for like an example, if you were to leave today and go work out, and then tomorrow you were to be pretty sore, you wouldn't go to a doctor because you know that's, that's going to fade. It's going to go away. It changes the way that you live your life. That day you're going to act a little different. might not try to lift a bunch of heavy things, but it's going to fade away. But if you were to walk out of church today and fall down those stairs and break your arm, you're going to go to the doctor because you know that pain isn't going fa- to pass. If you don't do something about it, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. You're going to get other infections. Lots of things are going to happen that I don't know about. But it's not going to go away until you go to the doctor. There's a difference in scale. And we make decisions in light of these things differently. Just like that is temporal and eternal things. There are things that matter in eternity, and there are things that matter here and now. Often life is really painful, and those temporal things are really hard. I don't want to, I don't want to discount that. Life on earth can really suck at times, and it can challenge us, and we can make decisions in light of temporal instead of internal just because of that. But we need to understand that eternal perspective changes the way that we look at temporal suffering. I think we see a good example of that in the New Testament with the early church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we get a, a kind of a good example of this. He says, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16 through 18, says, so we do not lose heart, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So here we see a New Testament eternal perspective. He's explaining exactly what I was just saying. There are things here and now, the seen things that are they're transient. They're, they're walking away. They're going to fade. But there are those unseen eternal things. And even though they're suffering temporally here and now, they know that their hope is not in those things that are here and now, but in the things that are unseen, the eternal things. And so they set their eyes on the eternal. They set their hope on the eternal. That's eternal perspective. And it changes the way that they view their suffering because of their hope in eternity. So, back to Asaph. Asaph learns this eternal perspective through the example of the wicked while he's in the temple. He goes in, he's envying these people. God shows him the end of these people, what's going to happen to them in eternity. And he learns that what they have now, the things that he's envious of, fade away. So he learns this eternal perspective through the example of the wicked. Let's Let's keep moving. So, verse 21. When my soul was embittered, When I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. 
So Asaph here is, is pretty torn up. It's a, that's a pretty powerful verse, but he's torn up because that new eternal perspective that he's gained helps him to see how foolish it was for him to be envious of these people. He, he had said earlier in verses 13 and 14 that it wasn't worth it to be a prophet because he didn't have the things that these people had or that he was struggling in life and he, life wasn't going the way that he wanted it to. It wasn't worth it to be a prophet because of temporal things. That, that's a huge difference from what he's saying now. Where now he's saying that he was like a beast, that he was embittered, brutish and ignorant. And that shift happens because of that eternal perspective. He sees that what's left in these people's lives after here and now, after earth, is just judgment for the parts of their life that affect eternity. Their, their temporal life was great. They had everything. But the things that affected their eternity their relationship with God, their personal righteousness, those things were all rotten. So what's left for them in the final calculation is judgment for their evil hearts. And Asaph realizes the foolishness in his envy and says that he was like a beast toward God. He, he realizes that he was saying that creation is more important than the creator, that temporal blessings were better than nearness to God as a prophet. And now Asaph looks back, out, back at that and considers it an ignorant mentality, arrogant, like a beast toward God. And you and I are just like this, but I, I don't think we always see the, the brutishness of, of our mentality. Asaph sees it here in this passage, but I don't think we do. Our lives don't go the way that we want them, and ultimately we think that God isn't good. We accuse him of holding out on us. When, when was the last time that you repented for that? We accuse God of holding out on us all the time, but he's not holding out on you. God went all out for you. God meticulously crafted history to put Jesus on the cross to pay for your sins. He's united you with Christ. He's adopted you as a son or a daughter. He's given you a place in heaven. He's building that for you right now. And he's given you a place here on earth in the church where you belong, where you matter. He's given your life a purpose and a meeting, and he's guarding you right now until the day that he comes to bring you home. God, God is not holding out on you. He's given you every spiritual blessing in Christ, every single one of them. In eternity, you have all of the things. God's, God's not holding out on you. Please, please see that. I think we, we get so caught up in the temporal that we forget entirely what God has done for us in the eternal and if we do that, that's when we question the goodness of God, when we're so stuck on the things here and now that we forget about what God has done for us in Christ. We, we, have the, we have the audacity to look at all of the things that Christ has earned for us, that he's laid at our feet. We look at that and we go, and what else? Please see what Asaph sees here, the, the brutish and ignorant. It's like a beast toward God. It's offensive to God. Please see that. We need, to, we need to understand that we're just like Asaph in this. Let's keep reading. Verse 23. Nevertheless, it's a, it's a really good word. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me into glory. Nevertheless. This verse, as I've been studying this passage, has become one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Because we see right before it, Asaph confessed that 
He's like a beast. He's repulsive and smelly, covered in dirt. He's a cow out in a field. And yet God comes near to him. He draws near to Asaph. This is a righteous and holy, perfect God walking hand in hand with a repulsive sinner. It's a, it's a beautiful image that we, we need to sit on. I mean, just think about, think about yourself. You know your sin better than anybody except for God. God sees every sin that you've ever committed. He sees all of the ways that you hurt people. He sees your perverted desires. He sees your character flaws. He sees the way that you manipulate people. He sees all of the things that you hate about yourself, the things that scare people away, and yet he draws near, nevertheless. It's a, it's a really powerful picture, and Asaph paints it really well here in this psalm, that we are like beasts toward God, and yet nevertheless, he walks with us hand in hand. He comes near to us. He comes near to us in our sin, and he comes near to us in those physical, temporal circumstances that suck. God's with you in your suffering. God's there guiding you, walking with you, comforting you in your pain. Verse 25. So you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you'll receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? No one. And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. This, this is a verse that a lot of people memorize, but I don't think a lot of people understand. <laughs> It's one of those verses that you hear someone say, there's nothing on earth I desire besides you, and you go, sure, yeah, whatever. It, it, he just spent the entire psalm expressing all of these things that he would rather be than a prophet. All of these things that it's not worth being a prophet because I don't have that, or my life doesn't look this way, or I'm suffering a little bit. Like He is completely changed from that. Now he's saying, God, there's nothing on earth I want besides you. And I, and I think he means it because of that eternal perspective that he gained after entering the temple of God. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? Nothing. Nothing he's done on earth is setting up anything for him in heaven. He's got nothing waiting for him there except for God. And so if that's the only thing that matters in eternity, if that's the only eternal thing he has going for him, what, what about the temporal? The temporal, it doesn't matter as much because he's looking at the eternal, God is all he has. Relationship with him is the only thing he has in eternity. So then he can say confidently and mean it that God's the only thing that he has here on earth as well. There's nothing he desires on earth besides that relationship, that nearness to God. That's a, that's a perspective that's really hard to have, but it's super valuable. God in relationship with him, being near to him, being guided by him, walking with him. Those are the things that Asaph has learned to desire. Those are things that we need to desire. Because nothing else matters in eternity. Verse 26, let's keep moving. My flesh and my heart may fail. Asaph is admitting that there's a chance he's going to go back to this. He knows that his heart and flesh are going to fail him. It's likely that he's going to be like a beast toward God again. But God is, my, is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Here we see, this is Asaph confessing faith. This is this is a part of the gospel in the Old Testament. This is, this is confession. He's admitting, I'm, I'm going to make these mistakes again. I'm going to have that perspective again. But God is my strength. God is my portion. Portion means reward. He's no longer looking for those physical things as his reward for being a prophet. He's now looking at 
God is his reward, relationship with him, nearness with him. Let's keep moving. 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. So this whole psalm, Asaph has been dealing with the goodness of God. The beginning of the psalm, he says, God is, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. In the middle, he tells us a story about a time that he questioned the goodness of God, and a time that the people of Israel questioned the goodness of God. And then at the end here, he kind of bookends it with another statement. For me, it is good to be near to God. I've made God my refuge. So the whole point of this psalm, the message that he wants the reader or the hearer to understand, is that God is good despite the suffering that Israel is going through and despite the strickenness that he's experiencing as a prophet. God is good. I think he shows us this in, in two ways here in the passage. So one is, one is the justice of God. So re remember the story here. There's a group of people that are evil and wicked and powerful, and they're oppressing the people of Israel. And so Israel goes to Asaph and asks why God isn't being just. God's not carrying out his end of the deal here. And Asaph goes to the temple seeking an answer, not knowing what to say, and he comes away with what? The, the justice of God. I, I don't think we often think of the justice of God as a facet of his goodness. I think it's kind of a characteristic of God that we like to put in the background, the wrath of God, the justice of God, hell. It's not popular. People don't like to talk about that. It's not a fun doctrine. C.S. Lewis called it the hideous doctrine. It's, it's tough. But for the oppressed people of Israel for people that are sinned against and harmed, oppressed by evil people, being near to a God who's just is good. Evil and suffering do not get missed by God. Pain is not missed by God. He sees it. And he's a righteous judge who will judge the wicked. And so we see that the comfort, the reminder that God is good to Israel is not that their oppressors are going to stop oppressing them, but that they are going to get Justice in eternity. So he shows us the goodness of God and the justice of God, and then he also shows us the goodness of God in God's grace. So stay on that justice aspect. Why doesn't Asaph get treated like those evil people? I think you, you can take that verse, verse 20, uh, 22. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. You could take that verse and copy and paste it back into the paragraph describing the, the wicked. It's, it's exactly the same mentality. They're, they're not looking at God as, and worshiping him. They're looking at God and scoffing at him, putting his nose up to God like a beast. So what's the difference here? The, the, the wicked, they are made to fade away. They're set in slippery places. God judges them. But Asaph, who is also wicked towards God and evil towards God, he's drawn near to God. God pulls him in. That, the, it's not the same. So we see here, the goodness of God and his grace that even in Asaph's weakness, even in his temptation and his trials and his sin, God is near to him because of the gospel, because of grace. We see that Asaph doesn't run away from a just God. He draws near to him. He looks at God as his refuge. That's faith. He leans on the mercy of God, hoping that God will have mercy on him, forgive him for being a beast. And Asaph, back in the Old Testament, didn't have Jesus to look to, but we do. 
Asaph just hoped in the mercy of the Lord, but we have a physical representation of that. We have historical events to look back on in the life of Christ and see God's mercy played out so that we, like Asaph, can say that we've made the Lord God our refuge and that it's good for us to be near to God. In our sin, we need to go near to God, not far away. God is good in the, in the grace of the gospel. One last thing, and then we can, we can wrap this up. So, well, one last thing is two things. Two things are possible. Two things are possible when you combine what we have in the gospel in eternity with that eternal perspective that Asaph learned in the temple. One, you're made free to enjoy the goodness of God despite your physical circumstances. That's a lot easier said than done. But just this last week in my MC, we were sharing some prayer requests and two families shared some really, really tough circumstances that they're walking through with the group. We had the opportunity to pray with them and to encourage them. But before we pray as a group, we read scripture. And it just so happened that the guy who was reading scripture that night was the husband in the family that was really going through some stuff. He opens up his Bible and he was going to read our call to worship, and it's Psalm 148, which opens up like this. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights, praise him all his angels, praise him all his hosts. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. This man had just finished admitting to this group that life is really hard right now. That life sucks, he's suffering. And then you have the powerful moment of him reading, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. In the seeming contradiction of life is hard but God is good, this man is trying to live a life honor God, trying to live in that seeming contradiction, which is hard to understand. It's difficult. But it's true. Just like that verse from 2 Corinthians, having eternal perspective, having a hope in the gospel in eternity, knowing that your treasure is in eternity, allows you to deal with suffering here and now in a a different way. We're free to suffer and still know that God is good because of what he's done for us in eternity through the gospel. What we have being united with Christ. So one, you're made free to enjoy the goodness of God despite life's circumstances. And two, you are able to love and bless people freely because your treasure is in heaven. And this is really the call of the church. We're we're called to sacrificially love the people around us, to love them well, to serve them well by giving of what we have temporally because we know what we have in eternity. It's, a, it's, a only, it's only possible to do that with a good heart when you know and believe that your treasure is in heaven and you have that eternal perspective that I can willingly put myself into suffering. I can give sacrificially because my treasure is in heaven. Again, it's a difficult thing to do, but it's possible in the gospel with that eternal perspective. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, thank you for this passage. Father, life is hard. A lot of the times we go through suffering. But God, you are good. You've proven that in the gospel. You've shown your love for us through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we wouldn't just look at temporal things, but that we would turn our eyes to the things that are unseen, the things that are constant, the things that are secure in the gospel. Father, that we would put our hope in those things, that that our treasure would be there, that we'd be able to walk through suffering and live life in a way that is powerful, that proclaims to our culture that you are good, that our treasure is in heaven. Father, I pray that you would help us in that. 
because we don't have we don't have the strength to do that on our own. Father, we love you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.